to want to become a leader, I don't really want to follow somebody whose aspiration is to be a leader. I want to follow somebody who has a compelling vision that has to be done. And they're good at engaging others to come with me and let's go make a difference in people's lives. That's Dr. Henry Cloud, acclaimed leadership expert, clinical psychologist, and New York Times bestselling author. So if you want to know if you're a leader or not, turn around and see if anybody's behind you. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're revisiting one of our most popular episodes from the podcast where I sat down with Dr. Henry Cloud to discuss why your situation in life is equal to your ability to confront difficult situations, the motivation shared by the most effective leaders, and why transformational leadership focuses on unity rather than division. The climate we live in, if you want to start an explosion, just open your mouth and you can pick an issue. But it is a tough place to lead now if you want to be a unifier. Our biggest problem right now is division. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Dr. Henry Cloud is a world-renowned author whose 45 books have sold over 20 million copies worldwide. As a clinical psychologist and leadership expert, Dr. Cloud works with executives and leadership teams in a variety of industries to achieve improved productivity, alignment, and success. I began our conversation by asking Henry about the genesis of his leadership journey. I was a competitive golfer. and I got recruited to play college golf, and I, had, I was pursuing that dream, and that's all that mattered to me. I happened to be, at that time, an uh, accounting and finance major. And I always thought if I didn't do something in the golf world that I would go to law school. I always wanted to be an attorney. And then halfway through, I had an injury and my game was suffering. I wouldn't play well. I had to quit. They couldn't fix my hand. And so then I had a sort of wake-up call in life and started studying psychology and a lot of you know spiritual development stuff. And I got my life sort of back on track. You know, the existential crisis of a 20-year-old, right? And so in that, I got really interested in psychology. And then I went into the field of clinical psychology. My first job was in a leadership consulting firm. And so I actually started out as a clinician, but with an emphasis on working with high performers and businesses and CEOs, both in the clinical side and the leadership side. Then I started a company uh, later in my 20s, actually, I decided 
why don't we go buy a psychiatric hospital and one that we can control and do right? And went out and raised the money and put the team together and went out and tweaked the model a little bit and started a company and had hospital units and treatment centers in about 40 markets in the Western United States. And so I ran that business for 10 or 12 years and then sold it to a private equity group. And by that time, really loved working with CEOs and businesses. And that would have been kind of late 90s. And that's what I've had a boutique practice. I worked with CEOs of public companies, Wall Street firms, all the way to pretty large, you know, private private entities and enjoy it. I just love working with CEOs and companies and their cultures. So I read, I believe this is in your bio, but I wanted to ask you about this, if you could help me define this, because it says that Dr. Cloud became interested in how clinical psychodynamic ego psychology and object relations theory integrated with human performance past the clinical areas. If you could elaborate on what that is. I don't know what bio, that bio must have been written for us like a graduate school or something. But it does get us into kind of what I believe about leadership. You know, when I first went into this field, I was trained in all those schools of psychology. That particular description, that's really about character structure. And it's how humans are glued together. By character, I don't mean just morals and ethics. That's that's an aspect of character function, but also emotional intelligence, your ability to persevere, how you lean into crises. Do they excite you? Do you resolve them? Do you get angry and scream at everybody? Do you have, you know, executive functions to be able to finish a project and allocate resources? Is somebody ready aim fire or are they fire ready aim? That's a lousy leadership style, but it comes from how somebody's glued together. So I really got interested. If you go to every board squabble I've ever been called into, the CEO and the chairman are at war. Or the board's got to remove some somebody from a leadership position, or even in departmental squabbles, it's never about the person's IQ or about their business acumen. It's always about their leadership style and these character logical, the way the equipment is glued together. So I got really interested in the way that human construction interfaced with leadership and getting results. And that's that's kind of what all that means. Everybody's got a problem. If you're good at something, you're screwed. Because you're good at law or you're getting, you know, we're talking to attorneys, you're a litigator, or you know, you do MA or you do contractual stuff, and you're really good and you you develop an expertise, and then everybody comes to you, crap, I got more work than I can do. Well, then you take out an associate. Now you got a team. Well, you're really trained to do litigation, but now you're a leader. You got two jobs. You were trained for one of them. You weren't trained for the other one. And there's a whole discipline of leadership that is just like learning law. You got to learn this stuff. And so I looked at all that leadership, which is very important stuff. But then people go out there and try to pull it off. And then they find out they're the tool. And they're the ones that ask to cast vision. They're the ones that ask to create strategy or execute. Or what if your conflict avoided and you got to hold people accountable? Then we get into the personal issues. So I just really came to believe that those two were, I call it the middle space. And that's where I hang out in between how humans work and how leadership works. And we're putting those two together. And when it comes to leadership, where do you see most CEOs and business leaders go wrong? 
they create teams and organizations in their own image. Every CEO, every leader is going to have some signature strengths, right? And they're also going to have some characterological strengths, like the way that they just are as a human apart from their gift set. Some are highly relational. Some are more introverted. Some are highly confrontational. Some are direct. Some are more kind of consensus building and all of that kind of stuff. That's just kind of personal makeup. But what happens is when you start to run an organization, there's a, there's a reason, and this isn't just CEOs, it's people that lead departments and all that, but there's a reason why we use the word CEO as opposed to COO or CFO or CMO or whatever. It's chief executive officer. Now, if you get to the psychology, that's neuroscience. You have a prefrontal cortex that does something called the executive functions of the brain. The difference in you and a German Shepherd is a German Shepherd just barks, right? My my Doberman just barked. We had to close the door. Well, she just barks. The postman calls FedEx and she just barks. You've never seen a German Shepherd or a Doberman bark and then stop and go, I wonder if that was helpful. Is that going to get me closer to where I want to be on Thursday? Did I bark loud enough? See, they're just running along their patterns. Well, most CEOs, they just bark. They see a crisis, they run in there, they do it. They see an open market, they run in there. And that's how they're wired, which is great, except they don't have all of the gifts of the executive functions. See, an executive has got to, number one, see something that doesn't exist, a vision. You got to have a desire Future state. I I see a day when this firm has a hundred different attorneys in several different lines, and there's a vision. All right. Well, then, what does your brain do? If I'm going, if my brain says I'm going to walk from here to there, the next thing my executive functions do is they they don't just start walking. Your brain can't walk. It's got to pull the talent together. So now I'm going to need a couple legs. I'm need a couple arms. And now, okay, I got my team together. Well, you got to motivate that team too. You got to send out impulses and get them going. You got to keep them engaged. So now we start walking. Well, how are we going to get there? Am I going to walk? Am I going to skip? Am I going to ride a bicycle? No. You come up with a strategy and a plan. Well, you start doing that. What if you wander off? Well, you better be measuring the right things and then holding yourself accountable and then you fix it. That's what an executive does, all five of those functions. Well, I've never met a CEO that had all five of those strengths, vision, engaging talent, strategy and execution, measurement, accountability, and fixing and adapting. Some of them are visionaries and they just launch off. They wouldn't know a strategy if it hit them in the head. Some people are very strategic and they make plans all the time, but engaging talent, they're not. So CEOs, they'll try to turn everything into the way they are instead of getting above it and saying, okay, I'm not good at this, but my firm, my company, my business, my department, I got to make sure all these things are happening. And once they do that, then you can fix any of them as long as they're not an idiot. And I want to talk about how people grow and develop and even the importance of before you lead anybody else, the importance of leading yourself. I saw you post the other day that it's hard to get better at something when you think you don't have a problem. 
And and I'm curious if that's step one, it just in that in that self-awareness. It's self-awareness, but it's also situational awareness and it's also other awareness. So, you know, it's interesting. I've done a lot around and with the Navy SEALs. And my my brother in law was a SEAL actually and and we lost him in OA. He was killed in Iraq. But <clears throat> greatest guy and his buddies and you know, you see learn so much from them and this is interesting. When a seal lands, you know, they parachute in and they land behind enemy lines. They look at their little pocket, you know, GPS equipment and instantaneously. And and I, I used to say they asked three questions and one of them told me, we don't do them in an order. You got to know all those three things at once. Here's the three questions. Number one, where am I? If I want to Osama Bin Laden's route, I need to know that. Okay. So what's my situation? What's reality? As Max Duprate said, the first step of leadership is to define reality. That's the situation, who I am, what I'm in, all of that kind of stuff. So where am I? Second thing is, where's the enemy? I better know where the danger is, right? But the third question and the most important question is, where's my buddy? Because if I don't know the answer to the first two, but I do know the answer to the third one, they can tell me where I am and tell me where the enemy is. So when we're talking about, you hear a lot about self-leadership. Well, self-leadership, I mean, I understand what people mean by that in emotional regulation, impulse control, all that kind of stuff of being in what we call broadly emotional intelligence and self-control. But that only comes in the context of relationship. And so another place you said, what's the biggest mistake CEOs made is they do it in a vacuum. You've heard them say, you know, it's lolly at the top. Well, it better not be. I'm serious. If you mean it's weighty at the top, yeah, it's weighty. But A, if you're carrying that weight by yourself, you shouldn't be. And if you're lowly, that means that, you know, I mean, what president's going to go to war without the joint chiefs around them? And so that's another mistake that CEOs make. I wrote a book called The Power of the Other, and it's about high performers are never doing it by themselves. And that's a big. And I'm curious, I, this came up at a, in a leadership conversation the other day because some of my leaders came to me and they said, well, these members on our team, they want to be leaders. Like I think a lot of people view that as the next step in their path or in, let's say whether it's a career path or it's just this idea of making progress. And my first response when I heard this is, why would anybody in their right mind want to be a leader? And I'm, I'm curious just from your standpoint, why do people become leaders or is that something that it is, let's say from the standpoint of a CEO, you find yourself in a position where I have to be able to influence other people to make my vision a reality. That's a really robust conversation because a lot of people want to become leaders for the wrong reasons. You know, it's it's basically they have kind of an first of all they have an idealized picture of leadership. I always tell people if you want to become a leader, then you need a lot of problems and a lot of pain, and then you get good at solving those problems. And when you do, then people go, oh, and they give you bigger problems. So you graduate to bigger problems, the better you get. That's your future, right? When the president sits down at his desk every morning, they give him a book of really bad, bad situations. But they have an idealized, they see the pomp and circumstance. Everybody respects them and they 
sometimes they're, they're over, trying to overcompensate for their own sense of powerlessness or self-image or whatever. So a lot of it can be wrongly motivated. Secondly, like you said, to want to become a leader, I don't really want to follow somebody whose aspiration is to be a leader. I want to follow somebody who has a compelling vision that has to be done. And they're good at engaging, engaging others to come with me and let's go make a difference in people's lives. I'm not trying to be a leader. I'm trying to change something. And when people have a passion and a belief that it can be done and they have the competency to do that and they start down that path, you can't, they can't not do it. Well, they start down that path and I want to go. I want to go. Can I go? That's, that's leadership, not I want to be a leader and everybody get in line. So if you want to know if you're a leader or not, turn around and see if anybody's behind you. And in a way, it, you, you kind of look to the root of why would someone become a, an entrepreneur or start a business? And it, I, I found that when you ask enough why questions, it, it typically comes back to freedom. And I've heard you say that freedom equals responsibility. If you could elaborate on that. Freedom equals responsibility, which ultimately said correctly equals control. And I like to make sure that that freedom equals responsibility and control equals love. Meaning that all three of those have better be equal. So if I'm free to do something, so I start my own business, right? That's an exercise in freedom or autonomy. Nobody's making me. Nobody's telling me what to do. Nobody's going to tell me what it's going to look like, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to start this if I'm an entrepreneur. And that's a great drive that people have. And the good thing about it is if I'm free to do that, now I'm responsible for it, which means if something's wrong, that's my problem. Nobody else's. That's real ownership. Okay. But the good thing about taking responsibility in life is if I'm responsible for it, I control it. And if I realize that I'm in control of what I'm responsible for, that gives me incredible agency and I'm no longer a victim. So I got my own business. Things aren't going well. Well, I've got to look to myself to what am I going to do to make that different? And that may mean engaging others' help, but still, I got to ultimately, as I the subtitle of one of my books says, I'm ridiculously in charge. And a lot of times people start to play victim and they don't realize, no, look, this is your baby. Whatever results you're getting or morale or whatever it is, you're either causing that or you're allowing it. one of the two. You're either creating it or you're allowing it. That's control. And what an incredibly free realization that is. I can determine which way we go, what we do, how fast we grow, how fast we don't, what markets we get into, this and the other. Nobody's telling me. Nobody's telling me what to do if I'm in control. And if you're, even if you're in a department and you got a good boss, they're letting you operate that way within certain certain boundaries. Anyway, you're empowered to do that. And then the third piece of that is love. So when I'm executing control and responsibility, and I'm using my freedom, I always want to have that measured by, am I doing anything hurtful or destructive to myself or to others? 
And if you keep all of those equal, that's a pretty big formula. The law is about going into a courtroom and defining who's responsible for what. Well, who had control of it when it happened? And if they do something that's loving, they go free, right? But if if I use my freedom and I control it, you know, run this company and I poison a bunch of people, I ain't going free no more, right? Because love broke down. So that's what I told my my girls when they became teenagers. Look, you're going to want a lot of freedom. I want you to have all you can get. But your freedom is going to be equal to the responsibility that you use and how much self-control. And we're going to measure that by are you doing something destructive to yourself or others? If you keep those, realize those are always going to be equal, here's what happens. If you use it responsibly, your freedom goes up. If the responsibility goes down and you're hurting yourself or others, your freedom's going to go down too, because I'm going to always make those equal. And speaking of being ridiculously in charge, uh, I want to talk about boundaries. I, I know that this, when this book came out, Boundaries for Leaders, that's one of the things I know you became very well known for, but how do you define a boundary? The same way your attorneys do, a boundary is a property line. And so when you think of a property line, you go to a plot map and here's where the boundaries are. But once we know what the property line is, then we know exactly what we're talking about, who owns it or who has control of it. Even if you lease it, you've, you've purchased control of that. You have agency, okay? So a boundary defines a property line, what I'm in control of and own and have the freedom to do what I want to with in this certain lines. But once I step over that boundary line, now I'm either a trespasser or I'm a thief or I'm an invited guest because somebody else and I entered into a free will choice at will covenant. So interpersonally, way we define boundaries are, you know, you are a person, I'm a person, you're responsible for yourself in control of yourself. You have freedom to do whatever you want to, and so do I. And that's the way relationships work. Now, if I step over the line and I start to try to control you, manipulate you, violate you, hurt you, you can scream foul. And that's where the property line of setting boundaries and limits becomes very, very important, especially in running a business. The final thing I wanted to ask in regards to leading yourself, you've said before, then lead yourself in a manner that protects the vision. What do you mean by that? Sometimes when we use the phrase, lead yourself, that gets into a little bit of that operating in a vacuum thing that I get concerned. But I think what you're talking about is conduct yourself. So conduct yourself in everything you do and make your choices and all of that in a way that protects the vision. Yes. Now, here's the thing. The leader ultimately is the steward of the vision. It's your vision. Now, that may be the CEO, but it also could be in a department. For example, you work with attorneys. I work with all sorts of companies. And and generally, when you're in the C-suite, Right? When you're talking with the CEO, generally, there's a general counsel there. Give you a great example of this. Public company, everybody would know their name. They got a new general counsel, and we're doing a executive team retreat. 
and we're integrating the new general counsel, you know, onboarding, you know, into the executive team. And I'm talking about vision. And we did a lot of work with not only the company vision for sure, but what's each vice president's or, you know, whatever they call them in this, the general counsel, the CFO, the CMO, what's your vision for your department? So here's a great example. We did a lot of work and this general counsel and his team comes back. This is our vision for the legal department of this big company. We are the people of yes. Now, what does that mean? Well, generally, marketing wants to do something. They go to legal. No, you can't do that. R&D wants to do something. Well, no, you can't do that. They wanted to be seen and branded. The legal department, you've come to us because we're going to work with the law to find a way that you can do what you need to do. See, that's a vision. And you talk about a change in culture with all of those attorneys. And now we're part of, we're not just the people that everybody's always bugged at because we say no, but we're working with them and we're an integral part of this team to find out how we can go do what we want to do. That's a very different accelerant in a business fueled by the legal department because the general counsel was the owner of that vision. And so then what's he doing in all of their meetings is they got a very different flavor. And the way they're looking at R&D now is not at, now we got these out of control teenagers down there. They want to blow up the farm. They're looking at, these are our partners where we can go make a lot of money together. We can go reach our vision. We can go help a lot of people. Let's get deep in the weeds with them and collaborate and figure out how we can go do this. Totally different culture just because a general counsel had a different vision. And speaking of, I want to go down the angle briefly, if we can, of leading others, particularly when it comes to having difficult conversations. And I know you've written a book about this. This is, I think, a more popular topic now than ever. Why do so many people seem to struggle with having difficult conversations and how most of them approach it versus how you believe they should approach it? Well, why do they struggle? Let, let's get to that first. I remember <laughs> back in my hospital age, I was doing a group one, one day in the hospital. And these two women got into conflict. We always say, well, bring it up in group, right? So they're in group. And, and one of them say, well, I didn't like it when you did this. And the other said, well, you know, they start talking about it. And they're, they're processing this difficult conversation. So I'm looking over here. There's another lady over here. And she's looking at them l- like this. And she looked like my German Shepherd when she wouldn't understand something. You know, she kind of turned her head. And I said, I, I said, stop, guys. What are you thinking? And she literally, she said, I've never seen that. I said, seen what? She said, that. I said, what do you mean that? She said, well, she was mad at her and and she told her and she's listening and they're working it out. And she said, where I come from, I've never seen that. Somebody be dead by now. I have never seen that. So why do we have difficulty? Well, a lot of times people come from training grounds, which is basically a lot of times your family of origin, your teacher, your coaches, all of that. When these patterns and maps of the world are getting formed, You've never seen it go well. You've tried to give feedback. You've seen somebody get defensive. You've seen them shoot the messenger. You've seen them never talk to you again. All of this stuff. So a lot of times people are having trouble doing this, but they're coming by it honestly. 
and they've had bad experiences. Secondly, not only do we have bad experiences, but we also lack the skills. You don't have an attorney listening that just read a book on litigation, and now they go do it. No, they did mock trials. They had to develop the skills. They had to write briefs that were sent back to them. They had to learn to craft an argument. And so one of the big things that's really, really important, my walking into a conflict, feeling like I have the skills and the ability to move towards that conflict. So bad experiences, lack of skills. And thirdly, we have our own triggers. I mean, every human, you punch the right button and the brain shuts down and the reptile brain leaps into control which is fight or flight or freeze. And so when you're fight or flight, you're going to push and destroy with anger and persuasion and debating and making somebody see your point, all the things that don't work, or you're going to flight, you're going to withdraw and be silent and not say what you wish you said you had and walk out of the room and think, Dad, tell me, why did I say? Because the reason is your brain wasn't working. And it's not working because there's anxiety, and we change that by doing the things that I was talking about. So we we overcome our maps, and we learn skills, and we practice. So now you got attorneys who've been doing this for 20 years. They walk into a courtroom. They're not afraid. Well, the first time they walked into a courtroom, they probably had to wear it to pins. There's a lot of anxiety. Well, we get better at it, the better we get at it. So that's why. And here's another thing. A lot of it's a mindset. You take a seasoned attorney, this is what I love about attorneys, is, you know, everybody rags on attorneys. Well, everybody rags on them until you need one. And what does a great attorney do? You're going to find yourself a lot of times, if you do anything, you know, you run businesses or all this, all of us that have built stuff and run stuff, you're going to find yourself in conflicts. And some of these conflicts are with crazy people. Somebody's going to see you that is crazy. And what they're even claiming is crazy. I remember I said to my, my attorney one time, had a former employee that was upset about something. I said, well, obviously he doesn't have a case. The attorney goes, uh, in California, a person has a case that they feel like they have a case. <laughs> Some of this stuff, it gets into serious situations and you're in conflicts or a deal goes south or whatever. The client is anxious. Well, one of the things a great attorney does They have the skills to sit down at this table and get these partners that are on opposite sides of the table. They have the skills to get them on the same side of the table and put the problem on the other side of the table. That's one of the big things that I work with is helping people to enter into, to be like a good attorney and sit down in scary situations and lean into them. The word confront comes from the Latin word to face something frontally, to come together and frontally look at an issue, not be an ostrich and put our hand in this head, but we're going to look at this issue. It's not an adversarial term. It shouldn't be, but in our heads it is. I wrote a book called Integrity, and one of the qualities was to embrace the negative. Great performers, they chase problems. They chase conflict so they can resolve it to get past that obstacle to the next level. 
your success in life is equal to your ability to confront. And that's almost the definition of a good law firm is they go in and confront obstacles and conflicts with people or potential obstacles and conflicts, face them squarely and find a way through it. And that's a positive thing, not a negative thing. And I'm sure you've been asked this question about a million times, but but I'm, I'm also sure that there's people listening that would love to get your insight on this. What challenges and opportunities do you see now arising for leadership in this, let's say, post-COVID world? We have practical ones, you have personal ones, and you've got kind of, let's call it the larger Veltashang of kind of where we find ourselves right now. I think that that practically speaking, what happened in leadership was the things that kind of make everything work, which are how we're connected, what our structures are, our schedules, our routines, the way we do things, kind of what people have control of and what they don't, their ability to exercise their gifts and all that. So you're floating along a certain way. And then COVID comes and it just was like a tsunami that obliterated your ability to connect with the people you lead and your customers. It did away with all of the structures. You don't have control of a tenth of what you used to have control. Well, listen, let's go, let's get 300 people together and take that. Oh, well, you can't, you can't do that anymore. And, and you lost control of everything. You can't go and like execute a lot of things that used to make you thrive. And when I talk about it with leaders, I, I, I go deep dives in those categories and how can you bring these things back in your organization so people can actually thrive and you can get results. That's one of the big challenges. The other big challenge is, uh, you know, we normally have 17, 18% of people in the United States that would meet criteria for depression or anxiety or an addiction. And now, last year, I hadn't seen the numbers recently, but it's over 40% of Americans reach that criteria. So you got a lot of personal pain out there. And if leaders aren't listening and oriented to and helping both inside the tent and in their customer base, as well as their supplier and vendor, everybody in your whole business milieu, you're going to run into a lot of this stuff and you need to be equipped and oriented to deal with that. And then thirdly, don't strike a match outside today because there's a gas leak out there. And what I mean is the climate we live in, if you want to start an explosion, just open your mouth and you can pick an issue. But it is a tough place to lead now if you want to be a unifier and not a divider. Our biggest problem right now is division. And you see it around executive teams, you see it around families, you see it around extended families, you see it in companies, you see it in the society. Harvard defines a difficult conversation as when you have something that really matters, the stakes are high, you have high emotions about it, and you have different perspectives. That's when you have a difficult conversation, all right? Well, that's where we find ourselves in multiple issues. So take COVID, take vaccination, take, you know, masking, take whatever you want to take. The stakes are high. It matters whether or not somebody gets this thing. It matters. Stakes are high. The business stakes are high in how you handle whether we open or where we go. The stakes are high. Number two, the emotions are high. This is not a neutral topic. And thirdly, 
there's different opinions. You put those two together, you have a combustible array of stuff. Now, when I go into a situation like that, because my job a lot of times is to, whether it's boards and CEOs or departments or executive teams or whatever, my job is to take all of those ingredients, as are a lot of your your attorneys, to take all of those ingredients and rearrange the way we're putting the molecules in there to where it comes out with something that doesn't explode is kinetic energy to drive something positive forward. That's what a good facilitator does with a difficult conversation. So what we need out there right now and what we need inside is we need leaders that are able to take the divide and sit above it and are transcendent to the positions, but they're united or they're leading towards the higher purposes and the higher goals and be able to bring those positions together to get to the mutually desired upon result. Okay. And we don't have leaders like that. A lot of times we have leaders that fuel the divide because this greatest psychological tool, the bat, the greatest bad one is the victim, persecutor, rescuer triad. And that's when you, when and leaders do this all the time, They'll take a group that feels like they're victimized or they will convince them that they are. And these are the bad guys over here. And I'm going to step in and be your rescuer. Okay, so now I'm in power, right? Well, that's not what a good leader does. A good leader transcends the divide and pulls everybody into unity. Now, in that, they will execute justice. If somebody's getting victimized, they won't allow that. They will execute it in a way that also tries to redeem the whole picture. And we don't have a lot of that happening right now. We got division upon division upon division. We need transcendent leadership that can bring people back together. Why do you believe we're not seeing more of that, more of that unification, if you will? Is it, is it just easier to be divisive in, in the sense? Is it just kind of a lazier way to lead or is it more effective perhaps? Well, it doesn't pay well, <laughs> right? My point being, how many job openings does one side post that says, hey, come come help me get along with that group over there? They're looking for the leader that can squash the other guy. And you see this in any, in any kind of reconciliation process. What a reconciler's got to do is got to go get each side really hearing and understanding where the other side is coming from, even if you don't agree with it. Well, in today's world, if you just try to even acknowledge something from the other side, and well, let's listen to that. What is this concern? You are canceled. You're gone. And I literally did a post on one of my things about the, the importance of compassion in resolving a conflict. Okay, that is a neurological fact, Right? I did a post about use compassion. It helps or something. I got one group of hate mail saying, trigger alert, trigger alert. You're telling me to go be compassionate to my abusive, whoever it is. You're trying to get victims hurt. I did not say anything like that. In fact, all of my writings would say the opposite. Oh, you have boundaries. You have limits. You don't subject yourself to 
But that's how a little bitty spark can explode things. It is a very difficult scenario out there, but we need we need people with the skills who can can go out and do it. And I guess that's where the opportunity comes in. Did, are you optimistic in the in the years ahead from the standpoint of a leader and and their role in helping to solve this? I I am optimistic, but I'm optimistic in the way that I know leadership works. Here's what we know about optimism: is it fails and it always succeeds. The ones that make things happen are always the optimists, always. Every research project in the world's ever been down reaching goals and performance shows that optimists win. Always, always. But optimists fail if they're blind optimists and all they see is the positive. Basically, a leader is going to accomplish great things when, number one, they have the 100% conviction and belief and hope that, yes, we can win, we can beat this, aligned with 100% open eyes and embracing of how hard this is going to be and what the obstacles are. When the Navy SEALs are commissioned to go get this guy, if they don't believe and have hope that they can do that, it's a no-go. They don't do the mission. That's why they get to the hit go by assessing risks and whether or not we go forward. I was sitting in a bit with, with, uh, with General McChrystal, and they, they talked about getting to that right number. Okay, They got to know we can do this. But how do they spend the next however many days looking at every possible way that they can get shot? Because this is not going to be easy. I'm certain we can do it, and here's the obstacles. I'm optimistic. When we have leaders that truly believe, and I believe this, I believe that in the universe, good triumphs over evil. But I also believe that in certain compartmentalized spaces, evil can triumph over good. If it's compartmentalized in a closed system and doesn't have access to redemptive forces. That's why in a company, you can't have division, for example. So I believe that good is stronger than evil. There's no such thing as darkness. That doesn't exist. When does it get dark? When light isn't there. Okay, so am I optimistic that light dispels darkness? I know that's true. The question is, do we have the people that know how to shine the flashlight in a way that doesn't get them shot at or blinds the people that they're trying to get together. It's a tough moment, but yeah, I'm optimistic. You've always done it. Why? Well, from my perspective, this isn't our place anyway. It's God's. And as we come to a close, this this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, um, what does being a game changer mean to you? We've all had that experience where... <laughs> The game is going a certain direction <laughs> and something changes the whole game. And now we're losing or, and now we're winning or now nothing's happening. Or the second way is, and probably the bigger way, is the way the game is being played gets changed. I'm a competitive golfer. Jack Nicholas came along 
And at 18 years old, Bobby Jones, the greatest player of all time, said these words. He plays a game with which I am not familiar. He changed the way it had been played. Okay? But then the third thing, that, and this is what we need today, the third thing that game changer means to me today, if we could change the game we're playing from annihilation, shutting down the other side, all that kind of stuff, to the kind of things that we've been talking about, if a law firm, if a department can change the game from being the regulation parent to the accelerator of how we get deals done, that's a game changer. That's what it means. If Steve Jobs can democratize listening to a song from, I don't have 12 bucks for now, but I got 99 cents, that's a game changer. Change the game. Change the whole game. I hope you enjoyed revisiting this episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with our guest, Dr. Henry Cloud, and have gained new insights from our timeless conversation. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691, and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Dr. Henry Cloud, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com. Oh, 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 oh